Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is your host, Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are talking about the final monument of the season, Ile Lombardia, through the Lombardia region of Italy, around Lake Como. Uh, the race went from Como to Bergamo, a very beautiful race, very good race. Uh, we'll break that down in a minute. And then we'll also talk about Tadej Pogacar's win and if it makes him the best rider currently racing. And it actually makes him stack up surprisingly well compared to Eddie Merckx's first three years. So we'll break that down in just a minute. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition that comes out once a week. If you like the podcast, it's a no-brainer. Sign up right now. There's also a paid edition. It comes out daily during Grand Tours, uh, twice weekly during non-Grand Tour weeks, and breaks down every major race in detail and more, and comes with discounts to major brands like Stages Cycling, Fastcat Coaching, Curé of Switzerland. Sign up at beyondthepeloton.substack.com right now if you want to unlock that value. All right, back to Il Lombardia. Tare Pogacar wins. Fausto Masnada gets second. Who didn't see that coming? Adam Yates gets third. The story of this race, though, was Pogacar's attack started solo, then later was joined by Fausto Masnada, but for all intents and purposes, was really a solo move. Masnada bridged up to him with about 13, 12K to go and just sat on his wheel. And Pogacar did all the work pretty much all the way to the line and then beat Masnada in a sprint. So pretty, pretty definitive victory. It's, it's actually, I feel like that was kind of glossed over, but that is wild to just be pumping on the front and the guy behind you doesn't take a pole. You go into the sprint and then he just absolutely roasted him. Um, it looked easy. It looked really easy for him. It seemed like he sprinted for 50 meters and then just kind of sat up and celebrated what what seemed like a, a really long way from the line and the fact that i was impressed that he let that he basically ran the clock down as much as possible he didn't start sprinting until like 100 meters to go which is actually really savvy because it turned it into just a pure quickness contest versus the big mistake a lot of guys make in this situation is you go way too early you like lead it out like 300 meters out because you start to panic and it actually gives the person behind you a chance because you're giving them a long lead out. You're toast by the time you get to the line and they can just come around to win. You turn it into a strength competition versus a quickness competition. And if the guy's been sitting on you for that long, anyone could beat anyone in that situation. So I, I was really impressed by that move by Pogacar. But we let's back up and go back to the definitive moment of the race, the, the I'd say the most important moment of the race on the Paso de Ganda, which was the final they're kind of like mini mountain passes in the, it's like sub alt alpine foothills in northern Italy. Beautiful if you ever get a chance to go. Just some great cycling. Uh, it's it's very different than the high alpine passes. In some ways, a lot more difficult. Uh, the climbs tend to be shorter, but they can be a bit steeper. They're just not as graded as well. And the the roads are certainly narrower and and as and I find much more technical. And I thought what we saw in this race was that the they were a lot more technical and that did influence the race quite a bit and that's what makes Lombardia such a difficult race to win you have to be such a good climber i mean this isn't like even think of liege bastogne liege i mean these climbs are significantly longer than that and liege is a hard race i mean one of the hardest races in the calendar perhaps the hardest race in the calendar or even the world championships we saw we just saw which was a hard race but lacked any climbs really of any significance it was just constant kind of mild climbing all day and a high pace is what made it difficult versus lombardia where 
you have to be a legitimately good climber. Uh, I mean, these aren't, this isn't the Stelvio, but these are the world's best climbers, you know, left at the front. And these are long climbs and they're raced really fast. And we saw that with 38 K to go on the Paso de Ganda. This is the, the last major climb. There's one more little bump before the finish, like one little rise with 4K to go, tops out about 3K to go. So, But in, in reality, this is the last kind of moment to make your mark. And this is different from in years past. Lombardy is really unique because it changes the route pretty much every year. Um, a lot of times it goes from Brogamo to Como, and which tends to be a lot more interesting finale, at least on paper. I find it's a lot more up and down. A lot of times they do a circuit around Como that has climbing and descending. Uh, I thought on paper that this was kind of a dud course, but it played out really, really, really interesting. It kind of shows us that it's not just all about how something looks on paper and you know you can drop a race a certain way, but you know the, the race, the riders make the race and this showed it incredibly well. So on the, the Paso de Ganda, Tej Benut from DSN comes to the front and sets a really hard pace. I was a little surprised by this because Oh, Roman Bardet on paper was a favorite for this. He did win a stage at the Volta Espana recently, but before that, he had not won a World Tour race since 2017. And in fact, he's never won a one-day World Tour race. So the fact that he was investing a, a pretty strong teammate, a guy I thought probably could have been in that front group had he wanted to himself on a climb this far from the finish, it really wasn't his responsibility. I thought it was kind of an odd move. I did, I did not understand it. He's never won a World Tour one-day race, uh, but he's taking control of it and taking responsibility of the race really far from the finish. Um, I thought it was really strange. I mean, I understand that Bardet needs this to be whittled down as much as possible to have a chance to win. He can't win in a sprint. He has to win solo, but, you know, he's a great descender. So what? Let's say it's easy all the way up this climb. There's a big group at the top. He can rail that descent and try to whittle things down on, on the descent. And, you know, maybe that doesn't even hurt him that much. If there's a big group coming into that rise with 4K to go, you know, Bardet's a crafty racer. He's a really good racer. He could attack on that little rise, rail the descent into the finish, and win the race there. You know, I didn't think this was necessary at all. And, and keeping Benute with him in that front group could have, could have been interesting and useful as well. But what it does is it, it breaks up the race. It immediately makes it hard. The peloton was surprisingly large here. Uh, I, you know, I... I'm not an expert at Lombardia. It's one of my favorite races, but I feel like I have a hard time getting a read on it, probably because the course changes so much. But this seemed like maybe the biggest group I'd ever seen with 38k to go left together. Uh, but even just a kilometer later, Remco Evenepoel is getting shot out the back, which is notable with Alexander Vlasov, by the way, uh, because I mean, Evenepoel was one of the highest rated, at least in the betting markets, riders coming into this race and, and was really highly touted by the media. So I, I was a little bit surprised by this, even if either I'm not that high on Evanipol generally, I just don't really see the evidence where he should be considered like a big race winner. He doesn't often win races, period. When he does win races, it's usually solo at smaller races. Uh, he did win San Sebastian in 2019, but that was, you know, I, I won't say a fluke, but it just seems like for him to get solo off the front of a race would be really hard to accomplish at this point. He's much well more known now than he was in 2019. And he clearly doesn't have, didn't have the form. Uh, he just couldn't even stay with the group. So, it, but not even just setting aside the fact that it's difficult for him to get in solo moves. Um, he couldn't do that because he was going off the back and probably was kind of, uh, in, it should have been an expected performance since he was so strong at Worlds. 
just to be able to, that, that's a very different type of race. And I, I don't think I was clear enough on this and maybe didn't think about it enough heading into the, the weekend that Worlds in Lombardia, I think at first glance seemed to be similar and maybe the same type of riders would do well at both, but those are very different courses, very different races, take a very different type of fitness. So the fact that Evanapol was so strong at Worlds, um, you can't hold that form forever. And it's just, it's a slightly different type of fitness. I mean, this is long sustained climbing. Evanapol has not proven that he is great at long sustained climbing. And this is just kind of another piece of evidence that he has a lot of room to grow in that respect. And then a kilometer after that, or two kilometers after Benut kind of is really ramping up the pace, Vincenzo Nibali goes on a solo attack. I thought this is kind of fun and silly and it just, it, you know, nothing's going to happen from it. It's Nibali attacking. He's not who he used to be, but, you know, we'll see him go solo. He'll rail the descent. He'll get caught and shot out the back. What a good time. You know, but some interesting things happened here. Teo Gegenhardt's on his wheel when he goes. He's kind of working up to him. And then Tade Pogacar works up to Gegenhardt's wheel, blows by him, gets on Nibali's wheel. And those three really pull out a gap on the group behind. I was really shocked at this point that there's no Dakota Quickstep rider marking this. Like really shocked because they had been controlling the race up to this point, kind of taking it as their own. But what are we what are we doing here? Tade Pogacar is the best rider in the world. The fact that you you have to mark him. Like there's really no excuse for not sending up someone up to mark him. And if anything, it needed to be Julian Alaphilippe. Um, if you want to win the race, you, you need to be with Pogacar here. The fact that Roglic, I mean, we saw that Roglic was not on his best day. That's why he wasn't marking Pogacar. If he could have gone, he would have gone. Um, and maybe Alaphilippe just didn't have it, have it. But there is a little video clip. I have it in the newsletter. I'll put a link in the show notes. Alaphilippe looks to let him go. It looks like Alaphilippe could mark him. And he looks strong at this point, And he was strong after this. So... I think this was was just a big tactical error on Alaphilippe's part. And and then with 35k to go, about a kilometer after Nibali's attack, Pogacar dumps him. Um, everyone should have seen this coming. I, I mean, the fact that the if anyone in the peloton thought that, oh, we'll just let this group dangle at the front, um, and if Ineos and Trek thought, we don't have to mark this because we have two riders up there, that was idiotic because Pogacar was always going to dump those two riders. I mean, they're not even in the same class as him at this point. So... Um, th this should have been expected, and the Peloton is a big problem here. You can see them. I have another little video clip. You can see them. They're not that far back, but it's too far. You know, it's maybe 50, 60 meters on a gradual climb. Uh, that's You don't want to give Pogacar an inch on that. The fact that they were comfortable giving him that much space is, is really mind-blowing. I don't think... I, I really don't know what they were thinking. They were back there acting like, oh, this is just uh, your kind of run-of-the-mill long-range attack. We don't have to worry about it. So, wait, what are you talking about? This guy's won two consecutive Tour de France's. He won Liege-Bastogne-Liege. He's hands down the best racer in the world at the moment. What, what, why would you not respond to that as quickly as possible? Um, three kilometers later, Dakota Quickstep has Fausto Maznan on the front, nailing him back. Uh, the gap's at 30 seconds, though. You know, that's too big, in my opinion. They never should have let that gap get out to 30 seconds. You know, when they had Pogacar at 10 seconds, they should have been nailing it back then. So, you know, I think between 35K to go and 32K to go, essentially, they lose the race right there. It might seem small at the time, but they never should have let it get out to 30 seconds. Pogacar gets up and over the climb, and, and this is why you want to keep the gap closer. You know, it's 30 seconds, at, about, about 30 seconds at the summit, but 
just even a kilometer or two in the descent, Pogacar's having a lot of trouble. He's locking up his back wheel. He almost crashes multiple times. He's really struggling on this descent. The gaps drop to 25 seconds. So the Peloton's taking back time on that. If they have kept it to 10 to 15 seconds, it's down to 10 or 5 by the base of the descent. Then they can pull him back and it's race on from there. The fact that they let it get out to 30 seconds means that even though Pogacar was struggling, it still was a bear of a task to pull him back. And then things even fall apart further. Uh, just a little bit later, Masnada, he's kind of got sent off the back a little bit when Philippe attacked on the descent, which I think was a little bit of a mistake. Because Masnada comes by and kind of slingshots past the group and attacks, even looks back and sees he has a gap and just continues punching it. This is a huge mistake. To me, this is where Philippe loses the race because his teammate, who should be working to pull back, Pogachar goes up the road. And so if just a snapshot right here, you might think that's good because it's like, well, that's Philippe can just sit on this group. He doesn't have to do anything. And they'll have Masnata up there with Pogacar. They've got all their bases covered. But where that all falls apart is Masnata is never going to win this race against Pogacar. It's not going to happen. He would have to drop him on that short kick with 4K to go or out sprint him. He can't do either. So what's the point of sending him up there? If you're basically guaranteeing yourself second place, that's not an acceptable outcome when you have the world champion in a group behind who, who could beat Pogacar in a sprint. It's not guaranteed. It's probably not even likely. Pogacar is pretty quick, but it's possible. And it's more than possible. I actually like their odds there. You know, let's say it's a coin flip chance. That's pretty good. The fact that you would send a rider up who has a 1% chance of winning doesn't make any sense at all. So huge, huge, huge tactical error right here. I think it costs him the race. 29.7 k to go if you want to go back and watch it. That, that's where the race is over. The opportunity shot on Alaphilippe. Mazdata has a, has a great descent. Pogacar struggles a little bit. Kind of what's surprising here is Pogacar still had the third fastest ever time on this descent on Strava, which means even with those mistakes, he's, he's still flying. And then Mazdata is going significantly faster than that. So Mazdata was absolutely railing this descent. But if we go back, he just could have been railing the descent on the front of the group and they would have pulled Pogacar back anyway. So completely wasted effort there. And another another thing to point out about the descent is Pogacar was taking the inside line on the hairpins, which is normally normally what you want to do. But this particular descent, it's it was kind of graded oddly and the corners were flat or the hairpins were flat. So what you want to do in that situation and what Masnada was doing was going around the outside of them. Um, kind of hard to make yourself do that. It's not normally what you would do. It kind of feels weird, but you can go a lot faster, which is how he pulled back that extra time. You know, he pulled back about half a minute on Pagacha on the descent. It was really an impressive display. He eventually links up with Pagachar at the bottom, bottom of the descent, and he starts taking a few pulls. I, I was really shocked by that. That could not have been the playbook. That's definitely not what the team wants because what are you doing? You're up there pulling with Pagachar. You're basically riding to your own funeral, and then you're keeping Alaphilippe from coming back. So not only are you hurting yourself, you're hurting your teammate. It's a real lose-lose there. What, what he's thinking, why he's doing that is because he thinks, oh, well, I'm going to beat Alaphilippe and I don't want to get caught because then I have to defer to Alaphilippe. But as long as I'm up here, I'm the boss. I don't have to do anything Alaphilippe says. Um, this is a classic teammate, <laughs> like, like little teammate infighting where you're like, well, I'm in the move. If I can just keep working, then I can ride for myself. But as soon as I get caught, I'm then, I have to have to, I'm, I have to show deference if we get caught. So I want to do everything I can to keep us from getting caught. The team though quickly comes up. You see the team car come up and tell him to, to knock it off. Uh, 
I mean, I guess that's the right thing to do, but they sh he shouldn't even be up there. He should be back setting pace for Al Philippe because at this point, the gap's at 45 seconds. Everything's falling apart. That group realizes that while in theory, they should all be working a little bit to pull it back, which would give them all like, a, you know, not an equal, but a, a distributed chance of winning. They are, you know, infighting, essentially. They are don't want to work for each other because it means whoever works more is increasing the chances of the others to win. So it's um, while while like in theory they just want to share the the burden a little. Everyone works a little bit. They pull back the group and one of them wins. They are thinking, well, I don't want to give someone else a chance of win of winning. So I'll just sit on and maybe someone else will screw up and pull them back and then I have a greater chance of winning. When in reality, their chances are going to zero because the race is riding up the road. I mean, once again, you have Tadej Pogacar, probably the strongest rider in the world this season. Scratch probably from that statement. Um, the guy won the last two Tour de France's and he's now won two monuments in a year. That's the rider of the year, hands down. So yeah, why would you let him, like the fact that you think you're going to pull him back by soft pedaling through in a group of people that are soft pedaling, is, it's just not going to happen. And, and Alaphilippe starts to realize this. He kind of starts to panic with about 8.5 kilometers to go. There is a bunch of attacking. Um, and it, you know, maybe if you can get off the front with one or two of the riders and you're working really hard, you, you could pin them back. So the initial attacks decrease the gap by about 8 to, 10, 8 to 10 seconds, which you know, shows you, well, you know, it does take it, make a dent into the lead. But a few problems here. So if you don't get away clean, then you're just all going to stare at each other and you're going to have the same problem all over again. And in fact, your problem is going to be worse than it was in the first place because no one will no one will trust anyone because they saw that they just attacked them. And then if they work, that it just leaves them vulnerable to another attack. So this is really not good, like long-term planning. And a big problem is if Al Philippe is in a group, he's just going to sit on because he can't pull his teammate back. And he probably shouldn't even be working here in the first place or attacking here in the first place. And I have a screenshot in here, but Alaphilippe attacks. He's off the front with a group of three other riders um, who have attacked and he's followed and he counterattacks them thinking, well, I'm going to get away solo and I'll just bridge this gap by myself. My teammate's sitting on up front. Once I get up there, he can work for me. Just keep this gap pride open and then I'll beat Pogacar in the sprint. Like easy peasy, right? But what he's doing is he's dropping Jonas Vindegaard, who kind of gets caught at the back and then spat out the back. And you know, that's a huge mistake. That's actually really counterproductive because he doesn't get away. The groups come back together. And then Jonas Vindegaard, who probably would have worked to pull the move back for Primoz Roglic, isn't there anymore. So that's like a really valuable domestique who could have set pace for his teammate, but you know, also setting pace for Julian Alaphilippe, who doesn't have any teammates left at this point in the group because his teammates up the road. So that was a huge mistake to drop Jonas. Really, the race is over as soon as that happens because there's just not enough firepower left in the group. You also have Alejandro Valverde sitting on. This is like Val the Valverde special. You sit on a chase group, the groups come back together, and then he wins the sprint to win. Everyone knows this. Everyone's seen this for years and years and years. No one's going to fall into this trap again. So the fact that Vinegard's gone and Alif uh, Valverde's still there uh, really means that it's done for this group. Another thing I noticed is on the short pitch from like four to three K to go, Pogacar goes in first and just really just ramps that pace up. It's basically sprinting up the climb. This is super savvy because it means that it kind of pins Masnada behind him. Masnada's only chance here is to really go into the climb first and catch Pogacar out, drop him, and then descend down to win the race. 
But, you know, this is the same thing we saw with Cabrelia at Paris-Roubaix. He's putting his rival on the defensive when he should be on the offensive. And he's making it so that he just physically can't get around him. You know, it's very similar to that final five-star cobble section at Roubaix, where whoever, whoever is on the front is on the front probably until the thing ends. And he just must not have physically can't come around him because the road is so narrow and there's so many fans on the side of the road that your position going in is what your position position is going to be at the top. You know, once it tops out, the road kind of widened out a little bit and Maznado tries to attack there, but Pogacar just responded. He didn't even stand up. He just responds in the saddle, which shows how easy it was for him. Pretty big power play there. That must have been a little, I mean, actually must have been very, very demotivating for Maznada, but also shows that probably wouldn't have mattered that he went into the climb first. He wouldn't have dropped Pogacar anyway. And then it seemed like Pogacar really kind of had him on the ropes on the descent into the finish. Mazzotta was sitting on, you know, he's just going to sit on here until the finish line. That's the plan. And then try to catch Pogacar out in the sprint. Uh, obviously doesn't work. He, he couldn't even really hold Pogacar's wheel on the descent, which shows us just how good Pogacar is at bike handling and descending. At. It, was, it was a really impressive display. Um, and he's, he's using so much energy to close those gaps to Bogachar when he should be saving energy and then using that energy in the sprint. They come into the sprint, and as, as I said at the top, Pogachar leaves it so late. You know, he doesn't even really start sprinting until about 100 meters to go, which turns it into a quickness contest on a strength contest, which is exactly what Pogachar want beca- wants because he is, you know, outside of being one of the best time trialists and climbers in the world, is also one of the quickest riders in the peloton. So. By doing this, he's pretty much ensuring and guaranteeing victory for himself and just easily, easily out sprints Masnada. You know, he like, it looked like he did like 10 pedal strokes out of the saddle sprinting and then just sits up and coasts over the finish line for like the final 10 to 15 meters, which shows just how big his gap was to Masnada because Masnada keeps riding at this point and then just really sits up and gives up knowing that Pogacar is that much faster and that the gap he had pulled out was really insurmountable by that point. So, so pretty impressive performance. And in the, in the group behind, they're, they're about a minute behind. So you could see that they really fell apart as soon as Alaphilippe joined in those attacks with about between eight, nine and eight K to go. The gap went from 36 seconds to about roughly a minute by the finish. So really just killed, killed every, any, any momentum they had. And what was interesting is Adam Yates and Primoz Roglic were dropped in that final pitch, which is surprising because Adam Yates and Primoz Roglic were so, so strong coming into this race. If we look at the one-day classics leading into this, the, the Italian classics week, the strongest riders kind of hands down were Roglic and Yates, and they were just totally just smoked on that final climb. I, I was really surprised by that. But what got really, what was really interesting is the front group where they were just staring at each other so much on the finishing straight that Yates and Roglic come from behind and they just blow right by him. Roglic just doesn't slow down, just kind of stays in the saddle, keeps powering. Yates is on his wheel, which allows him to kind of blow by Roglic for the, the final podium spot. Uh, that's a big result for Yates to get a podium at a monument. That would have been pretty insignificant for, for Roglic. I think Roglic was just thinking, screw these guys, I just want to blow by them. If I get third, I get third. If I don't, I don't. So worked out for both of them. And Valverde, who's so, so dedicated to sitting in, wins that sprint for fifth place. And Valverde, what's interesting about that strategy is he would have raced that race no matter what happened. If that was a front group, he would have sat in and tried to win the sprint for first. If it's not the front group, he's going to sit in and win the sprint for fifth. You know, he doesn't care. He races the exact same way every time. Julian Alaphilippe kind of gets smoked by him and gets sixth place. David Guido gets seventh. 
Roman Bardet gets eighth, Michael Woods ninth, and then pretty far back of over a minute and a half behind them is, is Sergio Higuita, um, which shows us you know, probably some of the issues in that front group. If Valverde was always going to be the fastest, and you know, really I think Roglic is probably the faster sprinter at this point than Valverde, they have a lot of problems because why would David Godot and Roman Bardet and Michael Woods do any work because they know they're just going to get outsprinted at the end anyway. And this kind of takes us into the genius of Pogacar's move. It might have looked, I've said in the past that Pogacar has like no racecraft, like doesn't often race as like he doesn't know what the hell's going on and has no strategy. And he kind of did race like that, you know, attacking that far from the finish. It looks crazy, but I do think there's a method to the madness here. I don't know if he's getting better at reading races or if just kind of the trends are falling into his favor because we've seen this multiple times throughout the season where a rider will attack solo. Rarely did we have, I, I haven't crunched the numbers on this, but I think we have like the smallest number of reduced bunch sprints than we've ever had. You, you, you like normally have like specialists where like Michael Matthews would just like stay in groups and then win the sprint out of a breakaway. This year, it's been the year of the solo rider. It's the guy who attacks 10, 20, 30 kilometers from the finish from a small group. That small group, they cannot find common ground, which means they cannot you know, sustain the pace to close them down and, and contest the win for themselves. Pagacha's move is so genius because it, it almost foretells that perfectly. Like, you know, he knows that, well, if Valverde's in the group, if Alaphilippe's in the group, why would anyone work with him? They just know they're going to get smoked by them in the, in the sprint anyway. And think how on a uh, Roglic was on a bad day got dropped in the final climb which which was not long and he still could have won that sprint so those guys know how da- dangerous Roglic is to keep him in that to bring him to the finish in that group so there's no way that they were going to work for him and you know Pogacar got a little bit lucky with the Masnada bridge if that doesn't happen you know he is pulled back at the bottom of that descent but you know he's probably even thinking well I'm on a good day I'm strong so whatever I get pulled back we're all together with 11k to go. Uh, you know, I'll just do it again on the final climb. I'll just attack them. If I drop them, I drop them. If I don't drop them, I'll win the sprint anyway. So, so who cares? Who gives a shit? And that's exactly how you know. That's kind of like Pogacar's genius, and that's why he is such a good one-day racer because he doesn't care. He'll just do whatever. He's strong enough to get away with it. If it blows up in his face, next, you know, I'll get him the next time. I don't care. And he knows that he's so fast. You know, that's also a secret weapon to be able to win, like make these attacks, make mistakes, and then still win sprints is a huge, huge thing to have in your back pocket. Kind of another odd thing is like how underrated he was by bookmakers coming into this. He was still, I think he was plus 600 morning of the race, which is short odds for a one-day race. But if you think about it, the race, you know, suits him perfectly. He's the strongest rider in the world. Why wouldn't he win? And, And it seems like he's also underrated by other people in the Peloton. Now the fact that he wasn't closed down immediately is is really bizarre. It shows that they, they don't there's still not like a widespread respect for his ability. It's hard to imagine Julian Alphilippe doing that same attack and getting that much leeway. But if we pull out Pogacar is just doing things that you know no one else does. You know, this means he's won two monuments, a Tour de France, and gotten an Olympic medal in the same season, which is almost unheard of. I actually believe it is unheard of. He becomes the race's youngest winner since 1969 when a 21-year-old won. Pogacar is 23. He becomes the first rider since 1972 when Eddie Merckx won Liege Best on Liege, the Tour, and Lombardia in the same season. And he's one of only four riders to ever win Lombardia and the Tour in the same season. 
I mean, this is really shocking stuff. And you look at those three other writers, it's Fausto Coppi, Eddie Merckx, Bernard Hinault. I mean, those are the greatest of all time. Like we're talking about someone who is, he is on pace. His first three seasons are, you know, right there with Eddie Merckx's first three seasons. We're talking about an all-time great here. And he's really not treated as such. I mean, writers like Rimko Evenepoel, and these are good writers, like Rimko Evenepoel, Wout Van Aert, Matthew Vanderpool, you know, I frankly think they're more highly thought of. Even Julian Alaphilippe than Tadej Pogacar, he's not considered a step above them. But when we pull back and we look at the results, he is head and shoulders above those writers. I mean, we're not even talking about people in the same league. Think about Wout Van Aert. I mean, he's doing things that I thought were impossible, winning three stage types at a single Tour de France. His his accomplishments do not touch Tadej Pogacar. To win the Tour is so difficult. It's such a highly specialized race, very hard to do. Very few riders even have the ability to do it. And then also to be able to win multiple monuments in one season, one day monuments, it's it's completely mind blowing. I mean, Wout Van Aert's won one monument in his entire life. Same thing with Matthew Vanderpool, and these are considered the stars of the sport, but their achievements don't even graze Tadej Pogacar's. You know, it's, it's really, he's hands down the best racer in the world right now. And I, I think this does touch on just the cognitive dissonance in cycling. With cycling media and fans, and then the actual thing that's happening on the road seems so far apart, where Remco Evenepoel is considered like the a star of the sport. You know, he's only a year and a half younger than Tade Pogacar. So a lot of the, the youth card gets played a lot with him, but he's also pretty much the same age as Florian Florian Vermiche, who just got second at Pair Roubaix. I mean, there's riders Remco's age who are putting in performances that are that are roughly equal to his, if not better. I mean, Remco wins a lot of small races, but as far as big races, it just doesn't happen that often. You know, no, a win at San Sebastian does not make you a star. I mean, ask Boca Melema, ask ask Nielsen Palace. Uh, this is it's a nice race, but you can, you can't you cannot rest on your laurels after winning a single one day World Tour race. And, and you know, this is not Remco's fault. I mean, he's very talented, very 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 talented rider. But where the fact that he gets mentioned in the same sentence as Tadej Pogacar is, is crazy to me. I, we're talking about someone who who is step for step with the all-time best rider in the sport at this point in his career. And I believe that that greatness is, is not really represented by the media that well. And it's, it's completely disrespectful. I think a lot of it has to do with just people's disbelief in his, in his achievements. I, I, I've not seen really any hard evidence, though, to not believe it. I mean, why would you doubt Tadej Pogacar more than you would any other rider in the peloton? Why is he different from Julian Alaphilippe? It's never really made any sense to me. And Lequipe after the race was really, really, I thought, walking the line between what was acceptable. They wrote a piece just laden with induendo about how Pogacar just evades all attempts to, to catch him, where if you want to say something, say something, but get, get out of here with this induendo. I, I, it's my least favorite thing about cycling is anytime someone does something well, that you know, major media outlets will say something without really saying it. It's like if you want to say he's doping, say he's doping, and tell us why you think that. Show your work. But if you don't have any work to show, shut it, can it, move on. <laughs> Until he has a doping positive or some reason to suggest that he's not trustworthy, I I think that people are completely out of line for those pieces. Like keep is is the worst with it. I just. The innuendo really bothers me. Show us why you think he's suspect. 
So to wrap up the podcast, I thought I would read, I get a lot of just really, really interesting and thoughtful notes. Um, Every time I send out a newsletter, I wanted to share two of those and just kind of answer questions that they might put forth in them. And then we'll get into Merck's versus Pogacar. So first I had Andrew writing me about why Pogacar might be so underrated in these races. And his theory was that for years, Tour de France winners and contenders just basically ignored the classics. And this is true to an extent. I mean, you look at, at race calendars and schedules of these riders like Miguel Andre and Lance Armstrong, Chris Froome, Bradley Wiggins, they pretty much just disappeared after winning their tours every year. Like it would just be like, see you later, see you in six months, I'm going on vacation, um, which you could see why that's appealing. I mean, I can't imagine winning a Tour de France and then like getting hyped up for the Volta or, I mean, actually Chris Froome would race the Volta, but even just Lombardia in October after you've won the tour in July, that's a long, long time to extend your season. So that makes total sense to me. Um, it sucks though for the sport. It's it's not interesting. The the fact that you have like Lombardia in October, which is a fantastic race, a beautiful race, being contested by riders lesser than the riders you've the in the races you've watched earlier in the year is not good for cycling. And it makes it hard to get as excited about these events. The fact that we now have the world's best riders, I mean, undisputed best riders competing late into the season against each other in pretty top form is so incredible. I mean, this is so good for the sport. The fact that Primus Roglic and Tadej Pogacar, the two, the two top riders at the, at the upcoming Tour de France are duking it out in October in one-day classics and really going at it in those Italian one-day non-world tour one-day races leading into this is really incredible, really incredible. And then to top it off, they're racing against Julian Alaphilippe, David Godot. I mean, these are top, top riders. Um, Alejandro Valverde at 41 years old getting fifth is, I, I should have talked about that earlier. That is wild because that's his second top five position at a monument this year. I don't think anyone's ever done that at 41, that age. That is really stunning stuff. I know Chris Horner did win the Volta at 41. I don't, setting aside the suspicions, that was not a great Volta. That field was not stacked. Yes, Vincenzo Nibali was there. He was like so out of shape. He was a shadow of himself earlier in the year, from earlier in the year. So, um, and, and even having said that, a, a Volta win is good, but it's not, it's not two top five finishes at monuments. I mean, that's serious. Those are the best riders in the world showing out for monuments, um, where it, it, especially 10 years ago was not the case at the Volta. But to have the, the two top riders for the upcoming Tour de France just duking it out with um, one-day specialists like Bardet, Woods, Alaphilippe, Valverde is so incredible. It's, it's really, really cool to see. Uh, so good for the sport. And Andrew surmise, surmises that because so many Tour de France, top Tour de France contenders and winners have just ignored the monuments for so many years that the industry's gotten into the habit of just kind of writing them off when it comes comes to these one-day classics, which is exactly what happened with Pogacar. People are thinking, well, he won the Tour. I mean, he's at Lombardia, but you know, what, what's he really doing here? And Andrew, Andrew goes on to make this really interesting point that you know this focus on the Tour was sponsors trying to maximize exposure at the biggest races. So just kind of looking at it, like, well, where are we going to get the highest ROI? It's it's from the Tour. That that's that's the race that matters. The rest of the calendar is like not as important as the tour added together. So we're just going to focus on that. And I saw that with like US Postal, with Team Sky. That, that was really common. But 
And it is a high risk, high reward strategy. Got to point that out. But it, it, as he points, he also points out later in his note, it is short sighted because you're basically killing the rest of the calendar by doing that. And then you're focusing everything on the tour, which gives the tour way too much power, which they currently have. It also makes racing less exciting. It makes these great late season races kind of irrelevant, which I, it's, it's a bummer. But when you go back and, and you remember these great additions, like when Philippe Gilbert was winning Lombardia, you're like, that, that's cool. I, I was really into Gilbert at the time. But should that have been happening? I mean, this is a really climb-heavy race. Shouldn't he have been challenged a little bit more by riders who are better at climbing? It seems like that era of classics riders winning Lombardia was perhaps a sign that the, the Grand Tour contenders were essentially neglecting these one-day races. And then with Pogacar, so why is it different with Pogacar? I, know I don't have a great reason for this. Um, he's clearly just tearing up the rule book here by he likes racing. I think he, he likes racing a lot. He's like, well, why wouldn't I go race hard? That's what I do. That's what I enjoy. Um, but also his sponsor, if you think about UAE, like what, what do they want out of cycling? They're not trying to sell you a product. They're just trying to build a positive brand association with the country of the United Arab Emirates. And the tour is a great way for them to do that, but they don't, there's no real ROI there. They just are happy to be in the sport. So if Pogacar wants to focus on Lombardia, he, they're going to support that. You know, they're going to do anything that Tade Pogacar wants to do. So I think maybe a mix of having a sponsor who doesn't have like real defined goals that they have to stick to. And the fact that Pogacar just likes racing, you know, he wants to race at the tour. He also wants to race at Lombardia. He's not you know, thinking about this in a super, super calculated way, which is why the racing is so exciting. And then I got another note, um, great note from Jeff. He sends a lot, a lot of good stuff, a lot of good inquiries that kind of make me rethink my, my previous taken position on something. And he asked if, if Pogacar won via his long bomb strategy of, you know, attacking so far from the finish, because there were so many world-class contenders in the race, if there's a lot of smaller uh, you know, lower profile riders in that group, they're probably all fine working together just to secure a chance at a win and maybe a top 10. And, and I think there is something there. Like, you know, Valverde does not care about working to slightly increase his chances of winning. You know, Valverde wants to win or bust. If that race comes back together, Valverde maybe wins it, which is amazing. Um, if he starts expending energy, he's not going to win. So Valverde is all or nothing there. Same thing with, you know, Roman Bardet. What does Roman Bardet care about like a top five position at Lombardia? He's going to roll the die to try to win. Uh, th- there's definitely something to that. And, and I also wonder if there is something going on here where in the past, kind of in the pre-COVID era and the before times, um, there might have been riders in that group like Mike Woods, David Godot, um, even Adam Yates, who maybe would have struck a deal with someone like Valverde, Roglic, Philippe to lend their services of pacemaking to pull the group back, um, especially Philippe would have been. In the past, and a rider of Philippe's caliber with the teaming up the road, I no doubt, have no doubt would have been writing checks in that group to pull back his own teammate so he could have won. I think that's less effective now in the post-COVID. We had this kind of it hasn't really been reported on, but there has been a financial contraction in the sport where a lot of salaries for non-top riders have completely tanked because what happened during COVID is there was that gap in racing. A lot of riders got their salaries cut in half because it was sold as like, 
um, well, this is unprecedented and we're not racing, so we'll keep paying you, but we're going to half your salary. Um, it, will, it will be raised at a later date. A lot of those raises never happen. So people are just still racing on reduced salaries. Um, but if you've noticed, nothing's really happened. So a team, a company will say, well, we just decreased our payroll uh, to no negative effect. Why would we voluntarily increase it then? We, we, they've, they've just done a bit of price discovery and found that they were potentially overpaying domestiques. Because if you think about a cycling team, if you want to build a strong cycling team, you really should just pay 90% of your salaries to race winners. And you can fill out the rest of your roster with capable riders at the UCI minimum, essentially. You don't have to, you basically don't need that middle class. And I think that's what's, I think teams are realizing this and there, there is an erosion of the middle class in the Peloton. Um, it used to be the start. You had to get like a rider like Roman Bardet. He's been there. He's done that. He knows the race. Um, we're going to pay him 300,000 euros a year to like be the race leader, to be the leader on the road. But he's never going to win anything. And he's actually not going to work as hard because he's getting paid so much money and his career is on the other side. You know, he's won before. Like you're just not as motivated to work for other riders once you've been there. And I think what teams are finding is there's so many young, hungry riders who are so strong. You know, there's so many strong riders in the sport. You know, you can pay anyone 60,000 euros a year to, to do work on the front. You know, you don't have to pay someone a huge salary to do that. I, I think that's part of the deal here where, you know, there's just less like of those middle management jobs. So riders are not cutting deals the way they used to. Like Al Philippe would say, you know, help me win this race. And you know, maybe we'll sign you to an overpriced deal for the next three years on my team if your contract is up. I don't think that's happening anymore. So I think that's also a reason for these long bombs getting more and more successful. I believe we certainly saw this at the tour where, you know, if you think about Matej Motoric's wins, I think in years past, there would have been deals cut behind for him to be pulled back. But I just don't think those roles really exist anymore to be offered. And, you know, Al Philippe can't cut checks for people to work anymore because we saw what happened to Alexander Alexander Vinokurov. Um, I don't know if this was ever settled, but he was facing jail time at one point for wiring two hundred and fifty thousand euros to Alexander Kolbanev for helping him win Liege Bastogne Liege. And I believe I believe I forget the year. It might have been like two thousand twelve. So um, I don't think anyone's wiring money anymore to riders who help them win because it's technically sporting fraud. And once you wire the cash, um, you've, you've committed the crime where it's not a crime though, is if you do some work for me and then we hire you for a little bit too much money for the next three years, that's not a crime at all. So I think that's how that, that exchange of service has evolved, but I don't think those positions exist as much anymore. So that would be my, my kind of crackpot theory on that. And then Jeff's last question was, is this how Merck's road? Are we seeing cannibal? Part two. Um, great question. Uh, my initial reaction was no. Like, what are people talking about? Tadi Pogacar is not Eddie Merckx. It's crazy we're even having this discussion. But this is Pogacar's end of his third year as a professional. So I went back and I pulled the results of Eddie Merckx and Tadi Pogacar for their first three full pro seasons. Um, and the results were a little surprising. I mean, Pogacar's won 30 races, Eddie Merckx won 33 races in his first three years. So pretty similar there. And where it gets interesting is the quality might be on Pogacar's side. Pogacar only wins world tour races. It is shocking. Um, when you go to his results sheet outside of his two national championship wins, 
There's only seven races that he's ever won that are not World Tour races. That is shocking. Uh, I don't think there's any rider in the Peloton that has a higher win to World Tour win ratio. I mean, that is completely shocking. So even if Merckx has a few more victories, the quality is definitely in Pogacar's favor. Um, and if we pull out the, the, big, the big guns from those, from those three years, Merckx won two monuments, two Milano San Ramos, and a world championship. <laughs> That's nothing to scoff at. That's actually wild if you think about it in your first three years. Um, no Grand Tour wins, though. You know, if we look at Pogacar's big wins, it's two monuments and two Tour de France's. That is more impressive. It's, it's a bigger deal to win a Tour de France and a World Championships. Pogacar's not won a World Championships. That would be the only thing that Merckx has on him at this point. Um, but I think those two Tour de France's probably outweigh that. So uh, to answer Jeff, yep, Pogacar's, I would say, is arguably off to a better start than Eddie Merckx. As shocking that as that is, and I think that supports my my kind of rant up top about Pogacar being kind of criminally underrated. As crazy as that sounds, he's won two consecutive tours, but there's still this I, I, there's this massive lag in the in the media about just how good this guy is. And if we just look at Grand Tour stage wins, specifically Tour de France stage wins, monument wins, and overall Tour Tour de France wins. He's off to a much better start than any Mercs. But obviously, what makes true greatness is the ability to sustain those results for years and years and years. Um, Eddie Mercs was winning. You know, his first win came in 1965. His final win came in 1977. And he won five Tour de France's in that time. Five Giro d'Italia, seven Milano San Ramos, 24 Giro stage wins, five Liege Bastogne Liege. Three World Road Race Championships, 22 stages at Perry Nice, three Roubaix, three Perry Nice overall wins, three Flush Fallones, three Gent Wevelgems, and many, many, many. He won 283 races in total. So, um, Pogacar has a long way just to go. He's not, spoiler alert, Tadde Pogacar is not going to win 283 races in his career. But as far as those 34 stage wins and those five Tour de France overalls, he could match that. Um, he's probably not going to win five Giros. I mean, there's just certain things Eddie Merckx did that people will never do again. But if we also look at the multiple win- tour or jersey winning at the tour, you know, Tadej Pogacar is the only rider since Eddie Merckx to um, challenge for every jersey. You know, one there was one tour where Eddie Merckx won every potential jersey, every or every potential classification. Pogacar could do that in theory, and so in summation. He's amazing. It's, it's, I think this win means he's the best rider in the world. Um, there's a lot of people that don't like him for a lot of different reasons, but just going by the facts, he blows Wout Venar and Matthew Vanderpool and Julian Alaphilippe and Primoz Roglic out of the water. And um, it's kind of a bummer. I mean, I think also part of it is he seems so inevitable, where what's the fun in being excited about next year's tour if you're like, well, Tade Bogatra is probably going to win it. Um, but you know, as I, I did say above that this long bomb attack was a great move for him. This also shows uh, a vulnerability, perhaps. The, the way that can blow back on you is at a Grand Tour. It doesn't really seem to have the ability to like modulate at a Grand Tour the way you, you ideally want to be. If you want to win multiple Tour de France's, or, I mean, he's won multiple, but a lot of Tour de France's, let's say seven Tour de France's. Um, you really have to be analytical about it, especially as you get into your later tours. 
These, these long bomb moves are great in one day races. They can blow up in your face in a tour or any other grand tour because even if they're successful, you could be, you know, maybe your gap's not that big and you could be digging yourself into a hole for the third week for someone to exploit. And as far as like a way too early Tour de France 2022 speculation, I thought this was an, an interesting case study of Roglic versus Pogacar. I think, you know, I think we had gotten the idea over the course of the last two years that Roglic, you know, while I think he's, he's maybe my favorite rider, I really like him. I think he's kind of an interesting, nice guy. I don't think he's on the same level as Tadej Pogacar. And I think this race, this Lombardia win kind of shut the door on that conversation. It's potentially a buzzkill because they're going to be the two best riders at next year's Tour de France. And if Pogacar is just simply better, that could be a long three weeks for all of us. It, it was kind of interesting how much better Pogacar Roglic looked in the week leading up to this than Pogacar. Part of me worries that that is because of the longer distance. I mean, Lombardia is just so much longer than any other race they'd done since um, really the Olympics. You know, you don't get a ton of long stages at the tour, so perhaps that's not as relevant, but it does give me pause when you think about like a difficult stage in the third week. Who is going to benefit from that? It's potentially Tade Pogacar, um, not Primoz Roglic. And, and you know, maybe, maybe I'm misreading something there, but Roglic does seem to struggle more in longer races than Tade Pogacar, which really is pertinent when you think about a three-week race and how hard some of those mountain stages are. But the flip side of that is, is also how good he looked late into this Volta Espana. So all, not, all hope is not lost. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the 2022 Tour de France. I think a Pogacar Roglic showdown is still going to be very exciting. But I, I do have a, a lingering fear that this win is, is potentially a sign that not only is Pogacar better, but he's still getting better. Um, he just looks better better every time he wins a big race than the last time he won a big race. So uh, could, could be looking at the dominant rider for the next few years. Well, racing slows down for the next few months. We'll still have a few lingering races, um, but I'm going to start digging into the predictions I made during last year's off season about this year, how different riders and different teams would do and start grading myself really without mercy. So that will be some interesting content. And then I will get into my predictions for next year. So stay tuned and I will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.